Radio. Welcome to the Unlimited Wealth Podcast, where we help entrepreneurs like you build the wealth and lifestyle you deserve. My name is Nicholas Jensen, bringing you the secrets behind the relationships, strategies, and mindset of the most successful people on the planet. Showing you how to collapse time frames in order to win at business, money, and the adventures of life. You don't know what you don't know, so I'm here to show how the wealthy live, think, and make their money grow. It's time to live the life that you deserve. I'm, I'm here to help. My, my name is Nicholas Jensen. And, and this is Unlimited Wealth. Hello, my friends, and welcome back to the Unlimited Wealth Podcast. My name is Nicholas Jensen. Hey, today we're going to talk all about passively investing in real estate. Our guest is Lane Kawaoka, who is a retired civil engineer turned a real estate investor. He actually owns about 3,500 plus units across the United States. He's the leader of the Huey Pipeline Club, and they've done about $255 million worth of real estate deals since about 2016. He is also the owner of simplepassivecashflow.com, which is a top 50 investing podcast in the United States. So please help me welcome our guest, Lane Kawaoka. Hey, Lane. Uh, thanks for joining me today, man. Hey, good thing again, man. It's been a while. Well, yeah. can't travel and see each other <laughs> these days, but <laughs> yeah, we we're as we were talking offline just before uh, the podcast. I think you and I met originally back in 2016 at some real estate masterminds, and it's been interesting to watch you when you and I had the conversation. It was you and I, and I believe uh, your buddy is it Peter that, that uh, you were yeah Patrick uh, Patrick yeah. yeah Patrick Patrick that's yeah. what it was it was Patrick you and I Patrick standing uh in a restaurant having a conversation and you were talking to us about your podcast and how you just launched it and things like that and, and so it's been fun to watch you grow over the past you know three or four I guess it's been yeah it's been four years or so so life treating you well yeah. Yeah. Glad we started this whole real estate investing thing back then. Right. It doesn't get any better than today. Yeah. No kidding. No kidding. Hey, well, for my audience, uh, maybe before we get into the meat and potatoes and stuff, would you mind introducing yourself? Just give us a, a background of who you are. Tell us your story. What brings you to today? And then uh, let's dive into the goods. Yeah, currently uh, own over 4,000 apartment units and mobile home parks, um, but didn't start that way, obviously. Bought my first rental in 2009 when I thought um, every good little boy and girl should buy a primary home to live in. This was when I was up in Seattle. Uh, but even before that, I was groomed to walk the linear path of go to school, study hard, get a job because I was good at math and science when I was eight or nine. Maybe because I was Asian. I don't know. They said be an engineer, I guess. I don't know. That's what Dude. I did. <laughs> Racial profiling, my friend. I know. <laughs> I know. They profiled myself, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> but that's what I did because, I mean, that's a lot of people are told to do that, right? Like, go get that college degree and go get that second college degree. And, like, yeah. It's interesting you, you bring that up. I think we have a lot of the same philosophies, but I was just having this conversation yesterday with some individuals about school. And I'm like, Man, unless unless your goal is to climb a big corporate ladder, school doesn't make a lot of sense from a business standpoint. And now, if you're going to be a doctor, an attorney, and it requires a degree, or even if you know your lifelong passion is to be a civil engineer, um, you're going to have to like you're not going to be able to get around it. You've got to go to school in order to even get your foot in the door. But from an investing standpoint and a business standpoint. Dude, school doesn't make a lot of sense these days. That's not, and in, in you know as well as I do, that's not how the wealthy get wealthy. Yeah. I mean, my I got my 
the plumbers right on the wall there, they're all hung upside down for a reason. <laughs> but I mean, I, I will say like, look, like when I first started, I was doing the unsophisticated passive investor route where I was just buying single family homes. And I wasn't doing any burr stuff or any of that type of nonsense. I was that the, the high paycheck, the salary out of college that came from the college degrees was my my claim to fame, like right. That was where my seed money came from to start these rental properties. Eventually, getting eleven in two thousand fifteen, and, and now today. Um, so, I, as much as I talk a lot of garbage about it, and I totally chicken like, I I don't I it helped me get that money, and I think hanging out with guys like yourself, you start to think like, I I, I agree with you, man. But like most people need to go to college. <laughs> That, that's your thought process is you think most people need to go to college? I, I think college is kind of BS, but like most people are unable to execute on simple things and need a job where they are told exactly what to do every single day. Yeah, dude, that's an interesting perspective, actually. I mean, if you look at it that way, then yeah, like people, you know, if, if you have to be told what to do, then yeah, you're probably going to have to go to college even to get your foot in the door to to get it to get a decent job yeah like, but, like when when i started like i just made a new llc called fi for the worthy like when i started it's called this what fi for the worthy financial independence for the worthy okay like financial independence is not for everybody right if not yeah. who would who would barista the coffee right who would like do all these like jobs out there even like high level jobs like a civil engineer who would build all the bridges design all the bridges and roads right like yeah i mean you've got to have you've got to have people in those roles to to make society function i mean you're 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 definitely right but that aside so (laughs) i mean if everybody went into like a handful of syndication deals kickback this world would not function, right? It's true, dude. Uh, like if everybody was, yeah, you're right. Or you'd have a bunch of self-employed people that they're, they own their business, but they're also doing all the work. And so then you, you know, you'd be able to have this engineer that is able to, to design the, the roads and things like that. And then you'd have another guy that's actually sitting on the the paver paving the road, you know, but yeah. everybody had owned their, their own little business. So I don't know, dude, I, you've, I'm sure you've read Atlas Shrugged, right? No, no, no. Oh, you have it. Oh man. That's, that's my gift for you today. My friend, when you've got a lot of time, cause it's like 1200 pages. <laughs> you've got a lot of time, dude, go read Atlas Shrugged. It is all about capitalism and independence and breaking free from the man. So, so it's, it's a good read there. But speaking of that, you went from civil engineering to real estate investing. Why? Like what made you, what was the deciding factor that kind of made you make that, that transition or what sparked it? I mean, I was an accidental landlord. So I was living, I bought this house to live in because I wanted to be cool and have a house to live in, to call my own because that's all the dogma, financial dogma out there that says to do that. But then I was working on the road a lot, um, actually 100% of the time working for the railroad back then. And I was never home. I was at home on Saturday. So I was like, this is stupid. Let me call up my old property manager from college and rent it out. And that was where I realized like my rents were 2200 
the mortgage payment was sixteen hundred. I I didn't know anything about expenses, capex, whatever, but I saw like delta between those two numbers. And for a young twenty year old kid, that was a lot of beer money at the time. Um, yeah. And that was where I got it. That was where I essentially went all in. I was like, if I just keep doing this, it didn't take me too long from my salary saving all the money. If I keep doing this and keep putting money into buying assets, like Uncle Kiyosaki says, like I'll be able to fire my boss and quit my day job and build on my passive income. So that was kind of where, yeah, I went all in. I, you know, so, I, I so saved it so much more money. So it wasn't from like a mentor or a book or anything like that. You kind of fell into it. And once you fell into it, because of you being good at math, <laughs> you kind of saw saw the delta and were like, oh man, maybe maybe I can figure this out. Yeah, numbers don't lie, right? People do. <laughs> I mean, I actually read the Kiyosaki book, The Rich Dad, Poor Dad, maybe like three, four years into it. Okay. And I was like, huh, yeah, this guy's, this guy's right. You know, I'm already doing it. <laughs> like, <laughs> Cool, man. So what, so when you started, you, you got into single family homes. I know that you're mainly into apartment uh, buildings at, at this point. What, uh, you know, a lot of the people that listen to my podcast are successful business owners and they're trying to figure out, okay, I've got, I make good money, but I need to really turn this money into wealth, but I don't have a ton of time to, you know, go, figure out how to manage, you know, single family homes or, or how to, you know, buy an apartment building and, and be able to, to manage it and things like that. What, the route that you took was a very passive investor type route, meaning that you invested in things and were hands off for, for quite a while and, and had limited, when I say limited, you didn't have to be boots on the ground day by day, right? Yeah. So yeah. when you look at that and what would your advice be to like a busy professional or a busy business owner saying, Hey, I know I need to invest passively in different assets. We'll talk mainly real estate today. Cause that's, you know, what you invest in and, and I've got a, a huge affinity for, for investing in real estate as well. But what's your advice to somebody like that on how they kind of get into that and get started without getting burnt? Yeah. I mean, the first thing is like buy assets that produce cash flow, right? So Get away from all the primary markets where the numbers don't make sense where you're not one percent rent to value ratio greater right so seattle so, california hawaii no doesn't can work. you explain just briefly explain to the audience what you mean by the one percent uh value ratio yeah so one percent rent to value ratio is a sort of a indicator of if you're going to cash flow or not so you, you find this number by taking the monthly rents dividing and by the purchase price so a lot of the, the places that, you know, we like to target, you can buy 80% of median home price properties at $100,000 purchase price that rents for a thousand bucks. So a thousand dollars divided hundred grand is 1%, right? A lot of places in California, it ain't going to work. It's like $2,000 a month rent, $400,000 purchase price. No bueno, right? And yeah. Yeah. So just to, just to be clear uh, for the audience, the, the calculation he's looking at there, it's called a, a rent to value calculation. So the idea is it's just a quick calculation to determine, hey, will this property cash flow? And the way that you do that is you take your monthly rent, you divide it by the purchase price of the property. And the example that Lane gave us was $1,000 rent per month divided by $100,000 single, let's call it a single family home. That gives you a 1%. If you can only get $500 rent, that's a half percent. That's not going to work. So that's what he's talking about there. 
right. perfect. Right. So we all, I think, I think we all agree with that, right? I think that the next piece of this is like, all right, where is your, where is your net worth? And this is the point where the silly CPA or lawyer says it depends. <laughs> but no, like I'm gonna say, if you're under like a quarter million dollars net worth, half a million dollars net worth, you probably should start off with something like a single family home turnkey rental, right? Especially if you're busy. Right. But if you're higher than that, certainly a credit investor. I mean, that's where past investing is at LP. It's large syndication deals where people you trust comes into play. And then at that point, it becomes all your network, right? You need to know other high paid, high successful entrepreneurs that know that, that do these deals too. Right. So you don't work without a referral. There's not a shortage of deals out there. Right. And there's actually not a short of, shortage of operators out there. But the real estate industry is kind of like the health industry. There's a lot of shysters out there. There's a lot of scam artists. And, and I know that I'm sure you can talk specifically about individuals, but I know individuals specifically who've just been taken for a lot of money just because they invested with the, with the wrong individual. So when you're looking outside of like a single family home rental where you're going to own the, the asset itself, your net worth is a little bit higher. Let's, let's just call it a, a, above 250,000 bucks. You want to be looking at syndications, which is a pooled investment, meaning you've got one general partner or, or a couple general partners and some limited partners. And you as a passive investor would come in as a limited partner to invest in, let's just say you're going to take down an apartment building. So you're going to give $100,000 to this pooled investment. Um, and then you're going to receive some some cash flow off, off that. The trick to that is one, being able to analyze the deal to make sure that the numbers are accurate. But two, being able to have the network so that the operators or the general partners that you're investing with are sound, have a good track record, and know what the crap they're doing. So when you go to, and look at investments, or when you're building that network, how, how are you going about it? What advice can you give to people who want to invest passively? Maybe they don't have the network yet, but they're willing to, to open themselves up to, to create those relationships. What are, your, what are your thoughts around that? Yeah, I mean, so my, my, the way I do it, when I do my due diligence, it's 50% the person, 50% the numbers. Um, I can underwrite the deals. I mean, you and I were groups were, you know, back in the day where we got educated the right way how to do this stuff, right? Instead of just shaking people's hands, see who you like to drink beers with or whatever, right? Like we, we underwrite the numbers. Because like I said before, numbers don't lie, people do. So I'm going to pull the P&Ls and the rent rolls and see what kind of assumptions they're using. And based on those assumptions, I can kind of tell the character of the operator or, or what the heck they're doing. So I, I'm able to personally save a lot of time. If I don't like the assumptions that they're using, I don't talk with them and waste my time with them. But for an unsophisticated investor who doesn't have the ability to underwrite deals, I mean, most, most LP investors, 80, 90% of them have no clue how to do that. Um, how would they? <laughs> they don't even get the pitch decks are garbage, right? They're just marketing pieces. And, and this is why... If you've never owned real estate before, this is why I still kind of suggest going out and buy a rental property so you get the hang of it. So you kind of know what's up and what's down, what's totally fictional and what's, you know, what's made up. Um, but like, yeah, this is kind of where the people side comes. So if you're a high successful, high net worth credit investor and you have a network around you of guys doing this stuff, dude, just, just invest via proxy is what I say, right? At least you... 
you're not shooting in the dark. I mean, it's the analogy I use, and this is horrible, but like when you're at an intersection, right? And then these guys, the car's next to you on the left side, you're trying to make that right turn. The car on the left side is making the left. I don't know. I just go, right? So the car's coming and it's going to team on them where it hits me. That's sounds irresponsible, but I'm also only investing like a minimal spot each time, right? I'm diversifying my network and a variety of different deals with a variety of different partners. But that's really the only way that you're going to determine who's legit or not. There's no website for this. If it was, it'd be totally corrupt. People would just pay a crazy amount of marketing fee to get listed on such directory. So it's all word of mouth. That's the, the private placements, right? This is the wild, wild west. This is the country club. You bring up a good point is you've got to have a basic understanding of P&Ls on the, on the real estate. Like it's one thing to be able to read a P&L, but it's another thing to be able to read a historical data from a real estate investment to understand, okay, what has historically happened in this property? Assuming it's not a new development or a new build, right? Even then it, it becomes a little bit more complicated, but what's historically happened with this property? What are the assumptions that this operator is using or what do they think that they can do going forward? And you've got to be able to have the knowledge to bridge that gap. And if you don't have the knowledge, somebody close in your network has to have that knowledge or you're kind of throwing caution to the wind, right? Like you're, you're rolling the dice, hoping that whoever you're investing with is legit and honest and, and, you know, is going to, is going to do their best to, to try to get you a, a return on your investment. But you brought up something like back when you and I, you and I met, like we were educating ourselves. We were paying a lot of money to, to educate ourselves with these different groups. Right. And out of those groups come different operators and different syndicators and, and, and things like that. If somebody doesn't want to kind of, I guess, invest that time or, or that interest and things like that. And their net worth is a little bit higher and you're out in the wild, wild west of private placements. Where do they even begin to start? I mean, you talk about your network, but let's assume your network is like, ah, dude, I don't know. I like, I just invest in my business. Like I don't, I don't yeah. invest in these types of deals. Like, where do these guys start to I even think find these people? The, the person you're describing, I think is most LPs in my opinion, right? They're I mean, what? Most LPs is the person you're describing right now. I mean, who the heck has the expertise to dig into these P&Ls? I mean, your guys are smarter than the average bear out there. I mean, they're you know, business owners. So you can kind of tell a P&L from a tech startup or a real estate apartment is it's the same like form and income minus expenses, right? Um, most investors, LP investors don't know that, right? It's the classic accredited investor, unsophisticated, an unsophisticated accredited investor, dangerous combination. But yeah, I mean, part of that is just like your network, right? Like, I mean, that's why building a re organic relationship with other LPs or syndicators that you personally trust. And yeah, you're putting a lot of trust in those relationships, but you test them out small and you build the relationship out organically. I mean, the, at this point, I don't invest in the deal unless I have somebody like yourself, right? Like, hey, Nick, what do you think of this? What do you hear about this dude, right? And, you know, ideally, yeah. you want to have that comp that or, or that relationship already, like, you know, it has to be a solid relationship, right? It can't just be like had beers a couple of times or one time. Right? It has to be yeah. a real relationship. 
where you can like kind of drop trousers and be like, all right, you know, this is what happened, you know. And then did the person actually invest money with that person? Because in a lot of you know types of setting, especially with rich people, there's a lot of boasting, right? Oh yeah, Bob's deals are really good, you know. Bob's awesome, awesome. Come to find out, did he even invest any money? He's broke, right? How the heck does he know Bob is good? Because he's got like 500 Facebook likes, yeah. right? This is where you got to verify your referrals, right? You know. <laughs> You're brief. <laughs> it's so funny. And and that's why I kind of want to beat this dead horse is, is people need to understand. And a lot of people, a lot of sophisticated people are hesitant to part with their money by giving it to investors anyways, which I wholeheartedly support, right? Like be cautious where you invest. But on the same note, there's a ton of people out there and you see it all the time that are just giving money to who knows who, and then the money's gone and they're scratching their head wondering like, hey man, what just happened? Well, what just happened is you got taken because at the end of the day, like this is kind of the way this whole industry works until you, or not until, unless you know the right people and you're, you know, you're able to um, get, connect, get connected with the right people. Which brings up another question percentage of net worth invested in deals. So you talked a little bit about diversification in investing with other people. Do you have like some rules that you follow as far as how much of your net worth, like a percentage of your net worth that you're willing to invest in? Not only, let's talk about two things, not only a specific deal, but also a specific operator. Cause you may have an operator that's running, you know, uh, several deals. Yeah. So First, like specific deal, I would say like a guideline is don't go any more higher than five percent of your net worth. If you're if you're under half a million, of course you're breaking that rule a little bit. But hey, we've all done stupid things since when we were younger, right? Same thought process. But as when you become more of a credit investor, you know five percent is fifty thousand bucks, right? It's a substantial amount of money. But you know if you if you lost it, you would maybe not litigate. You just like screw it, whatever. We thought we wouldn't work with that douchebag again. Right. Uh, but yeah, that's kind of my thought on, you know, per deal. Um, as far as like per operator, I don't know, maybe like it depends, right? If you don't have a very good network, you're like a one trick pony. That's to go at all on somebody you trust. Right. I mean, yeah. I've, I've got, I, I've worked with like, I want to say like 12 or 15 different folks. And some have formed, some haven't. And over time, I've shrink it down. I don't know. That, that's more subjective, right? I think. Let me, let me ask you this. Are you, let's say that you have a relationship with, with somebody. Are you willing to take a flyer on a new operator? Or do you, or do you no. make sure that they're established <laughs> first? Because the reason that I asked this question is because I know people that have gotten into the game in the past, you know, five years and have really like, built a reputation of being great, but being the guy that's willing to take a flyer on them the first time, it's a little tough. You know what I mean? What are your yeah, thoughts? Yeah. I mean, I'm going to ask, answer the question as an accredited investor who's been in like over 25 deals, over 4,000 units that I operate and I'm an operator too. So there's not many people I trust other than myself these days. So my question is very skewed in that direction, but to answer your, I'm, I'm, I'm a 
GP and I'm also do a little LP stuff, right? Um, I'm a good point right now. Like I'm looking at some oil and gas stuff because I'm bored and I think that stuff is really fun. So I'm going to go have these with a buddy and I'm going to go in with 25 grand. He's going to go hopefully go in with 25 grand too and test it out. But only after my buddy has a, in his network, he's, he vouches for that. And I'm like, cool, man, are you, you going to put in somebody? Then cool with me. Let's just try it out, right? That's just how I operate. But I think for the person out there, you're not me. You, you likely have a weaker network, not to be a jerk or anything like that. But let's face it. Um, I guess what I would do at that point is I would, yeah, I would probably have somebody else <laughs> build your network so you shove them in front of the car <laughs> and see what happens, right? But if no, you don't have anybody to do that, I mean, at some point you got, like, that's what credit investors do. They feel, what I notice a lot of them do is they go into like three deals with us and they see what we do, right? I know that there's the golden goose up there, but I only have like $150,000 of their money in the first few years, right? We're trying to see if we perform. Yeah. Um, and I think that's the way to do it. I mean, it sounds irresponsible, but unless you put money in the game, you don't, you, you don't, it's all private investments. You know, it's like well, everybody gets the, in the airplane, plane flies off. Nobody knows if that plane made it to the destination, fell in the sea, fell in the mountains. Nobody knows unless you're on the plane. Yeah. That's kind of the way that, that's kind of the way that, uh, that you have to work is you, you heard that you heard the uh, old saying is don't, don't pay attention to the fans heckling in the, in the stands, right? Like the people that really know what's going on are the people down in the arena playing the game, right? So if you're a business owner and you actually want to invest in these deals, you can, we can talk about it all day long. You can take all the education you want, but at some point, like you're going to have to stick your, not only your toe, but your foot in the water put some money where your mouth is with either somebody that you trust or somebody that you trust, trust, <laughs> you know what I mean? And yeah. actually, and actually start to see if, if, uh, if you can get some returns there. And, and I've been in two deals that have gone absolutely South and we got time. We can be totally willing to talk about it, but you know, what that did for me is that allows me, you know, conversations over dinner or at the bar to kind of get really, get real with some, another investor and that has opened up more doors for me to figure out what they're investing in, not who not to invest on their side. So I'm like, you know, man, at the worst case scenario, you lose all your money, but you've got a great story and you got a great means to build more relationships. Right. <laughs> and that's a, uh, I mean, I don't know how South that deal went. I've, I've gone and I've been in deals that have gone South, but not to the point where I lost all, all of our money. It, we, yeah, it either yeah. took us longer to get our money back than we wanted, or we didn't get all of it back, but it like, it didn't completely like right. obliterate us. Yeah. But same, same thing here too. I mean, the first deal I invested with a shyster next one lost like probably about 20% or something like that. Uh, and, but that's why you invest in real estate. There's a hard asset there. Right. Yeah, that's true. So kind of looking for um, going forward, I mean, 2020 has been a crazy year, things like that. From your perspective, where are you seeing uh, some opportunities at? Because real estate is geographical. The way that Salt Lake City performs where I live is completely different than the way that Oahu performs where you live, right? Or Seattle and, or Iowa and things like that. So from your perspective, what are some opportunities that like if somebody's out there and they're like, yeah, I, you know, I think I'm ready to start 
dipping my toe in, in, in the water and, and investing some money. What areas of the country are you looking at that you think uh, um, somebody should start to, to pay attention to? Yeah. So, like, I mean, just to start out, like I'm not, I don't think the pandemic did much for like workforce housing and stock markets already, but um, as far as like markets, mostly South, Southeast, so like Texas, uh, Alabama, Phoenix is a more speculative market, but I like it. Um, yeah. Those are, are you those seeing any, are, are you like, seeing any opportunities in Phoenix right now? Uh, yeah, but you got to pay, I mean, you got to like just barely break even on cash flow, which is obviously breaking the card yeah. in our role, but look, I got cash for that. Right? Yeah. Like, so, like Phoenix so can blow up, right? Like yeah. one of those markets. Yeah. I mean, and even if it did blow up, like it would probably recover. It, it's one of those. Yeah. I mean, well, I mean, I mean blow up to like four to 7% rate increases per year for like three, four years in a row. Right. Yeah. 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 I don't, yeah. I don't think it's going to retract. I mean, Phoenix, it's not the Phoenix of 2008. So when you're referring to workforce housing, I just want to be clear for our audience. We're talking about Midwest. We're talking about the South. We're talking about communities and states that have a lot of blue collar type industries that a lot of people are renting, renting homes and renting apartments and, and things like that. Is that, yeah. is that what you're talking about? Yeah. Yeah. And I think there's a little rumbling of people always saying like, well, after, you know, there's a lot of foreclosures coming because of like the stimulus money burning off. I don't care about that. Like I don't go after like non-stabilized assets anyway. Yeah. So I don't care. I mean, that's just not my business plan. Like I, 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 I don't, if I did do that, yeah, I'm sure a lot of good distressed inventory is going to come out, but I stay away from that with those type of stuff. I mean, you can make a lot of money doing it for sure, but, but it's kind of, it, it's feast or famine. Like for me, it's all about cash flow, cash flow and stabilized assets. Yeah. Um, or if it's, if it's a newer asset, it's gotta be an asset that I'm building and I'm controlling because I'm like you, I trust myself more than I trust anybody else. In fact, I, I kind of don't trust anybody. <laughs> I don't, I don't want to say that, but cause that's not true, but I'm, when, when it comes to things like this, I just trust myself more than I trust, trust the next guy. So when it comes to new, new construction or new development, I've got to be able to control the asset. Otherwise it's a stabilized asset that's got a history uh, behind it and that cash flows because uh, again, we don't know how exactly how uh, Corona is going to shake out, you know, the real estate industry. I think, I think a lot of speculators are going to, are going to be hurting at some point. I think a lot of newbies are going to find that they got their butts handed to them. They got, sold assets by, you know, a slick talking real estate agent that was trying to make a commission. But I think people that have invested soundly for cash flow, even if cash flow suffers a little bit, I think that they'll be okay. I think depending on how bad it gets, I think that things will be you'll be able to stabilize those assets uh one way or the other and be able to pull out of it. That's my opinion. What are your yeah. thoughts? Yeah. I mean I I I was always kind of cautious and unsure about this whole real estate investing thing from like 2012 to 2018. Uh And in the back of my head, what you just said, I've heard it, I've heard it, and I didn't really believe it. But now after doing this for almost a decade, more than a decade, like I want to tell people exactly what you're saying. It's like, if you're investing for cash flow, you're good, man. Cool. Right, cash flow is oxygen. As long as you can keep breathing and holding on to that asset, you'll be fine. Right. 
Um, the difference when I was, I was doing turnkeys back in like 2014, 15, there's no value add, right? But when you yeah. compare value add with cash flow, can't be beat, right? Because like even if the market retracts on you in a worst case scenario, you're forced appreciation and going past the current. So it makes a trade that you choose anyway. Yeah. Um, it- I mean, there's a, just to give some people some numbers, like on like a deal, this is a little 100 unit where we're rehabbing units, we're getting a $200, $200 higher rents per unit. Uh, we're just sick at, at a rate of five or six units per month. I mean, we're creating like 200 to quarter million dollars of value every freaking month. Yeah. The, the market cannot go down that fast. Right. And when you look at the numbers in that perspective, it's like, oh, we're, we're good, man. Right. Yeah. And it sounds very cavalier, but that's what the numbers you're forced appreciating the asset. You're taking destiny in your own hand. Even if market appreciation was outside your control, just tanks on you. You're creating 200 grand of value every month. You're going to be able to force your way through that. And you said something there that people, I want the audience to understand. Even so, when you're investing for cash flow and that cash is coming in every day or every month, even if your underlying asset goes down in value, meaning that it's not going to continue to appreciate because of whatever happens in the market. If that asset goes down in value, as long as you've invested for cash flow and that cash flow is continuing to come in, you're good, man. You, you're good. You can ride that storm out and wait for the market to turn. And if you decide to exit in the future, you'll, you can figure out whatever your exit strategy is. But it's not a situation in which the market crashes and you're screwed because you've put your money in some speculative land development, hoping to give that back out in three or four or six months or a year or whatever the case may be, or even invested in a asset that's not cash flowing and now goes down in value and you're feeding that alligator just because the cash isn't coming in to, to support it. So I want people to really understand what you said there is that's what's so beautiful about investing in real estate. It's cash flow real estate is you can ride those storms out as long as that thing's cash flow. And even if the asset underneath it goes down in value due to economic unstabilization, if you will. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, that's the belt, right? And then the suspenders is if you're force appreciating the asset even yeah. more to the good. And talking about forced appreciation, dude, that like we could go, we could do a whole separate podcast episode on, on exactly what that is and, and how to do that. So cool, man. Well, Hey Lane, I, I appreciate you joining us. Any, uh, last bits of advice that you'd like to give, uh, give my audience here? Just, I mean, I figure out what your highest and best use is, right? Like your, your, your clan here is like mostly business operators. I mean, if you've got a successful business, that's like your highest and best use. But from what I see, I mean, I came at this a little bit different angle, right? I was more of a a high paid professional, didn't make too much money there compared to a lot of business owners. But like at some point you got to switch to more of an in-game strategy. Once you hit a critical mass, you got to move more more to hard assets. Real estate's like perfect. That's why we're all here, right? And especially for the tax benefits and deal flow is just one third of it. Like to me, the other two thirds is like, what do you do for legal taxes? How do you create your family office? How are you managing your adjusted gross income to pay the, the least amount of taxes? And all this is done via real estate, real estate profession status, et cetera. Yeah, that's, and that's one of the reasons that, 
that I love real estate so much is just because a lot of people don't see the advantages of, you know, the tax advantages and the cash flow advantages and, and all these other advantages that come with, uh, with investing in real estate. And as business owners really start to understand that and, and they start to take the income they're taking from their business and they start to move that and invest that in other outside assets. That's when they that's when they really start to see their their wealth grow. So, yeah. man, Elaine, I, I appreciate you. If people want to get in touch with you or they want to connect with you, I know you're obviously you're an operator. So, if if they feel like they connect with you and they'd like to learn more about you and, and what you're doing and, and maybe invest in some of the deals that you're doing, how would they how would they get a hold of you? Um, just go to my website, simplepassivecashflow.com, and check out the podcast too. <laughs> hey, man, it was great to talk to you. Hey, uh, thanks for joining us, everybody, and we will catch you next time. See ya. Hey, real quick. Are you a six or seven figure entrepreneur who is making great money, but like so many other unwealthy successes, you're not seeing your wealth grow? If so, I can help. Head over to nicholascjensen.com forward slash wealth and take my free wealth building assessment now. Learn how to become a strategic investor and start building the wealth you and your family deserve. Again, that's nicholas, the letter C, jensen.com forward slash wealth. We'll see you next time on Unlimited Wealth.